the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, things you've seen or experienced, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is to provide the phone call, 340, that's area code 210-340-9585 is our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. If you have questions that you would prefer to email, you can email questions at calvarysa.com. And you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Had a cough. Hey, we got nothing at all that we need to take care of today or announce. So let me just get right to our questions. This one is... Uh, from Michael, just came in from our email inbox. Uh, greetings, Pastor Ron. I pray you are doing well. Thank you, Michael. I am. In reading Genesis 49, I understand Jacob is prophesying his son's future. In studying scripture, and it appears God has and will deal with nations or tribes. Verse 10 reads, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. My commentary note states, Judah's line would produce the promised Messiah. Please explain this. A couple of things, Michael, about uh, this passage of Scripture, and just to understand the, the dual nature of prophecy. I think we really need to, to think about this. Genesis 49 is, I think, and this is just my opinion, the second uh, most extensive prophecy in all the Bible. Um, only Daniel 11 can be compared to it in scope and detail. Uh, it's written in poetic form, so sometimes it's a little difficult for us to follow through. But you're right, Jacob is telling the future of each of their sons, each of his sons and their ancestors. Now, when we view prophecy in Scripture, we need to remember that there's often... Uh, both short and long-term fulfillment. Um, the predictions in Genesis 49 will tell the immediate future of the 12 sons, but it also deals with the long-term effect their lives will have on the tribes uh, which come from them, the, their, their, their descendants in the future. But they also, these prophecies, look into the future from our perspective as well. These prophecies speak about things that will happen in the last days, um, Jews have always seen these prophecies as messianic, and indeed they are. These prophecies deal with the things to happen in the last days. 
Um, and and for us New Testament Christians, uh, the last days always mean the days following Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So what we have in this chapter is a detailed history of Israel's future as a nation, including the final days. Now, let me get to chapter 10. The idea when Shiloh comes, um, obviously, Jews believed that God had failed uh, because they no longer had the, the right to execute capital punishment. But they didn't realize that um, Shiloh, the Messiah, was already there. Um, of course, Jesus was there, and they lost the right to exercise capital punishment, and they believe that was a failure of God. So when he says in verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, um, nor the elder's staff from between his feet, until he comes whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now this, in, I, I just read from the NIV, the 1984 NIV, that's a little bit of an unfortunate translation. What it says literally is, and to him will be the obedience of the nations, and that part goes all the way down to the future and looks forward to Jesus' 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. The scepter is a symbol of authority and power. Uh, it's a stick, obviously used for punishment, a tool for judgment. Um, so that's just one of the things that they believed that prophecy had failed. Um, but, but the idea Shiloh, uh, literally that word Shiloh in the King James means he whose right it is. And that refers of course to Jesus. And they of course believed that uh, the, the Messiah would be alive before that power was ever taken away. They just failed to recognize that Jesus was him and in that place. So, that's the troubling part of the prophecy that they had to deal with. Now, little could Jacob or Judah, for that matter, in the in the prophecy before, know what God was predicting. Jacob was giving Judah everything that mattered. Judah, of course, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And Jacob was simply extending to Judah all that was really and truly important. And all of it happened as a result of acknowledging personal sin, repenting in that sin, and then turning to God for forgiveness. So that's what he's talking about. It's inheritance. There's great wealth. There's great beauty. Um, uh, await all of the descendants of Judah, those who believe in Jesus Christ because of the lion of the tribe of Judah who descended uh, uh, from this prophecy. Pretty straightforward. But Jews, of course, refused to see it. He came to his own in his own received and not. Good question, Michael. Let's get to our next question here. This is an anonymous question. He or she says, I sin constantly. I hate it, but can't seem to stop it. What am I doing wrong? I feel guilty, but don't really stop. Now, we had a similar question, different, but a similar one yesterday. And uh, what I said when somebody said, I hate my sin, I said, no, you don't. If you really hated it, you'd stop doing it. And when you ask, what are you doing wrong? I'll repeat what I said to the, the, the caller yesterday. Um, you're trying to fight. You're trying to stop in your own strength instead of letting the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've got this, this immeasurable, infinite source of power living within us. The power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And we've got it in the off position. We're trying to do all the time what we want to do. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people that really struggle with the idea that I, I don't want to stop. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an experience from the conference I just did this weekend in San Francisco. A young man came up to me after service, and he was really involved in ministry. And I talked about um, men who look at pornography and, and men who... who uh, are are really abusing their wives as a result of of uh, their sin. And while he didn't say that was it, it was pretty clear to me that that's what he was talking about. He said, you know, I just keep doing this and I hate it. And I said, well, if you hate it, why do you do it? Do you do other stuff that you hate? And he said, no. I said, here's the thing that you've got to realize. To hate your sin means you want to get away from it. And you keep running back to it. You keep putting yourself in a position where you're going to go back and do it. So uh, the truth is, we don't want to stop sinning. 
in our flesh, we do not want to stop sinning because sin is fun, at least for a moment. Then we're done. We get all kinds of guilt. The enemy condemns us, and we feel like we're the most miserable failures in the world. But the reality is that we're trying to fight it in our own strength. Let me give you an example that I hope will make sense of this. I had somebody come to me who was delivered miraculously and instantly from heroin addiction. This is many years ago now. But he came to me in tears and he said, I know God is so so not pleased with me because I can't stop smoking and I know God wants me to stop smoking. Now he's just talking about smoking cigarettes. And and I, I said, why can't I stop? Or he said, why can't I stop smoking cigarettes when I uh, God delivered me from, from heroin addiction? Why won't God deliver me from the cigarettes? And my answer to him was because heroin was going to kill you. Cigarettes are going to kill you, but they're going to do it really, really slow. God left them in your life because he wants you to experience victory over that. I think Anonymous way too often our our approach is to say, okay, God, just, just take this away from me so that I never struggle with this again. God leaves those struggles in our lives so that we can prove that we love him. What did God say to Abraham when Abraham was ready to take Isaac as a sacrifice? The knife was lifted. Don't touch the lad, he said. And there was a ram in the thicket for the sacrifice. And God said, now I know that you love me. Now, here's the problem. God always knew that, but Abraham didn't. So God left that trial. I believe Abraham's greatest trial in in his life. Hebrews chapter 11 puts him in the hall of fame of faith for that very trial. God left that trial in his life to make Abraham more like God. He needed to know who he loved. You need to know that you love God more than you love your sin. When I told the young man that he, there are times when you love your sin more than you love Jesus because when you are getting ready to sin, you've got to say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for taking me to heaven. But right now I'm going to do something really ugly, really filthy, and, and you need to go out of the room. And that broke him. I'll tell you the same thing. If you hate it, you'll stop it. And you'll stop it because you love Jesus. And he will provide the power, Anonymous, for you to be able to have victory over that. I told the, the there was a lady who, who wrote the other question yesterday, but I told her, memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Here's another anonymous question, same subject. What do I need to do to stop looking at porn online? You know, the answer is so obvious. Don't look. Don't go to the websites. Now, here's the process. And again, I know I'm repeating myself, but this is three questions on this same subject. Yesterday and two today. Um, when you start thinking about looking at porn, when you started to, to, to be tempted to do it, that's when you got to get up and do something else. Take a walk with Jesus. Open your Bible. Get on your face and confess to the Lord that I don't want to give in to these temptations. What did the Apostle Paul say? What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And then he came to the conclusion, oh, wretched man that I am. Well, you need to get to that point where you say, oh, wretched man or woman, it could be, uh, who can deliver me from this body of death? And there's an answer in the next verse, chapter 7, verse 25 of Romans. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Jesus will deliver you. But you've got to deal with your sin. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And again, he's not speaking literally anonymous. But what he's telling you is that you have to deal that forcefully with sin and temptation. And, and you know, it's so simple. I had somebody one time talk to me about, well, well, I'm an alcoholic and I want to, I want a drink. And I said, it's simple. Don't ever go anywhere where there's alcohol. Don't go to a store where there's alcohol. Don't go down the aisle if you're at HEB. Don't go down the aisle where the alcohol is sold. Don't go to a bar. Don't go out with your friends. Don't go to somebody else's house and they're going to offer you a beer. 
Just don't be around it. Don't be in the same place. The same thing is true. I had a man in the church many years ago who came to me, and he was a computer genius. And he came to me, and he confessed the sin of porn. What do I do? I need to stop it. And and I said, it's simple. You know, there are filters. There are, there are, there are things you can do to make sure you can't visit those sites. And here's what he said to me. He said, I can get around those. And I said, well, of course you can get around them. You, you, you're a computer genius. But here's what you need to understand. You need to get away from computers if, in fact, you can't control yourself. And I told him, I said, you know, you want to gouge it out or cut it off? Referring to Jesus' comment, I said, get rid of your computer. Well, I can't. I make a good living with my computer. Then, then you've got to decide who do you love more. Do you love your security more? Do you love Jesus more? But if you're this consumed that you would put security measures on your computer and then you would circumvent those security measures, then you've got a decision to make. Throw away everything Hebrews 12 says. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And he was unwilling to do it. I saw him, I don't know, six or seven years later. And he told me, honestly, I still struggle with it. Well, it's because he didn't hate it enough. Here's a good picture, I think, for all of us, especially the men, primarily men, but not exclusively, who are looking at porn. And by the way, your children are being exposed to pornography at um, probably nine years of age. Uh, we give them telephones, cell phones to to uh, to use, uh, and they have access to the Internet, and they're being exposed to pornography. The Song of Solomon says, Do not awaken desire before it's time. Your children aren't psychologically or physically ready for that kind of stimulation. And yet we give them the tools to destroy them. i got to stop because I'll get on my soapbox. I still don't understand why parents give children unlimited access to cell phones. I, I don't understand it. They look at me when I'm saying that. They look at me and um, they do that. Oh, I got another one. Wow. I, I didn't look at the next question. My producer just pointed out. Let me read the next question and I'll continue. My, this one's anonymous. My 15-year-old daughter is watching porn on her cell phone. I'm shocked and don't really know what to do about it. I thought this was a boy issue. Well, obviously, it's not just a boy issue anymore. But here's the thing. Why is your 15-year-old daughter allowed to have a cell phone? I know it's almost impossible to conceive of a teenager without a cell phone. But your 15-year-old daughter is being destroyed by her cell phone. And you're helping her do it, probably paying the cell phone bill. So why do we do it? I've never yet had somebody give me a satisfactory explanation. Well, well, I need to be able to get a hold of her. You know, I lived a long time before cell phones, and nobody had a problem getting a hold of me. Don't let your children destroy themselves at your house. If they go out and they do it on their own, especially as they are old enough to be adults and go out on their own, uh, just make sure it's not your fault. But here's what you need to do. You need to sit down and say, this is destroying you. Pornography, and this is for both of these questioners, pornography will destroy their view of sexuality. They will never have a healthy view of sex. They'll never understand how beautiful a gift it is given by God. And the reason is because we provided access for the enemy to destroy them. We do an awful lot of counseling here at the church. And I counsel adults who still think sex is dirty, ugly, painful, because of pornography. Young men who don't know how to treat their wives with respect. Young women who believe their only value is what they can do sexually. And moms and dads, we're allowing this to happen. I think I can say safely, most of you in this audience wouldn't allow your children to have 
access to coca- uh, crack cocaine or, or heroin. He said, well, of course I wouldn't let them do that. that. That would kill them. Well, pornography is killing them spiritually. And yet we hand them the tool to do it. We let them take their cell phones into their rooms, close the door. My parents tell me, well, well, I know what they're looking at because they have to show me where they, they, they can circumvent a parent who doesn't really know nearly as much about their cell phones as the kids do. They're on TikTok and Reddit and other places trying to brainwash them. And we parents turn a blind eye to it because, well, my kid needs a cell phone. Everybody else has a cell phone. It is unthinkable to me. It's something that needs to be earned. Their trust needs to be earned by the parent. And a violation of that trust means removal of the cell phone. And I'm talking to the wall because parents won't do what they know they need to do. So that's three anonymous questions in a row about pornography. And yet, in all likelihood... Um, this won't change anybody's mind. And I wish I could tell you the destruction I've seen caused in pornography, by pornography. Okay, change gears. Jeffrey asked this question. Will we be able to pray for people when we are in heaven? The answer is no. Um, We don't need to pray for people when we're in heaven. Because we're going to be with the one who ever lives to make intercession for those who are left on earth. Uh, so no, we won't be able to pray. We won't need to pray for people when we're in heaven. Uh, because we're going to be in perfect relationship with our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So Jeffrey, no need to pray for anybody at all. You know, we have a tendency to think superstitiously. Well, we'll be in heaven looking down on people. We won't. We're going to be in heaven looking into the eyes of Jesus. Kevin wants to know, is Calvinism a false teaching? Um, It's not a false teaching in the sense that it is heresy, Kevin. It is a wrong teaching. I want to make that clear. It it, it is a teaching that is in error, a doctrinal position or soteriology that is in error, to be sure. But it doesn't mean somebody is not a believer. It's just a wrong understanding of the nature, the character of God. One of the things, Kevin, that we need to remember is that uh, any doctrine that we settle on has to be consistent with the nature and character of God. And when somebody becomes a Calvinist, and I've seen this over and over and over throughout the years, um, they just they, they look at the Bible, they'll put a Calvinist systematic theology as a filter sort of over it, and then reinterpret the Bible based on that, that uh, Calvinist doctrine. And, and um, you know, then they'll have to start playing mental games. Well, for God so loved the world doesn't really mean the world. It means he loved the elect. Well, wait a minute. That's not what it says. That's not what the word means. But, well, well but that's what they mean. Um, God is sovereign, and God can choose some for heaven and some for hell. And it goes on and on. You can talk about the five points of Calvinism, and all of them are in error as a result of, of a Calvinist or a Reformed doctrine. So, again, it's not a false teaching because their view of Jesus Christ is the same. They've got the real Father, the real Son, the real Holy Spirit. Uh, They are believers. Um, I say often, Kevin, that there's going to be a lot of uh, people who are in heaven whose doctrine wasn't good. It doesn't disqualify you from heaven, thank the Lord. But Calvinism is a false teaching in the sense of it is error. Uh, it's, it's uh, again, not a heretical, but it is in error. And I think that's really important. Kevin, one other thing that Calvinism does, look at the fruit that comes from somebody who suddenly discovers that they're a Calvinist. You're going to watch the joy be stolen completely out of their lives. I went to Bible college, and Bible college is a place where the kids like to rebel. And our Bible college, of course, was, was not a Calvinist background. 
And uh, his name was Eddie, and Eddie was so grateful. I remember the first week or two at school, he was just walking around on cloud nine, you know, sort of, I can't believe I'm here. God is so good. God was speaking to me this morning. God was doing this. And just a young kid full of excitement that God allowed him to be at this Bible college. And then some of the Calvinists got their hooks in him. And two weeks later, um, this guy thought he knew everything. And all of the joy that was in his life had disappeared. And he wanted to argue with everybody. And he'd get really aggressive about arguing. And it was like he was an evangelist for Calvinism. And one day I just looked at him and said, Eddie, where's the guy that I met the first day of Bible college who was just so thrilled to be here? And he had nothing that he could say. So Calvinism is a fruit destroyer. You will rarely... I can't say not ever, but you will rarely see the joy of the Lord in somebody who has uh, adopted a Calvinist soteriology. So, Kevin, I hope that makes sense to you. Be careful, Calvinists. um, There's some great teachers, and I've benefited from many of them. I just tune them out completely when they get to anything that deals with that kind of a a reformed or Calvinist soteriology. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left on the program. We would love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I was just reminded that this is the last 30 minutes of February. Amazing how fast time goes. By the way, my oldest son... Turns 50 tomorrow. Seems like he was just a baby. Here's a question from Lisa. Pastor Ron, do you recommend The Chosen? Lisa, I actually do. I know it's not fashionable for pastors to say that. You know, we look at everything um, with a, a really critical, even cynical bent. But, but The Chosen, um, how many people have watched it. How many people are talking about Jesus? And and I know the arguments, well, it's, it's not true to the Bible. This is not the Bible. This is not inspired by God. However, the man who produced it, Dallas Jenkins, is using the gifts that God has given him. And, and believe me, people are talking about Jesus Christ because of the chosen. Um, there is artistic and creative license taken. There are things that are not in necessarily in chronological order. There are things, frankly, Lisa, that I wish he hadn't done. I think some of his characters um, um, are portrayed um, unnecessarily, inaccurately. Uh, for example, Matthew is on the uh, spectrum of autism. Uh, Peter was a gambler. That's what he got in trouble with. And And, you know, there's just some things that that certainly aren't true. But overall, it's wonderfully done. It's in large part, and certainly in heart, it's done correctly. And I just think those of us who can read a Bible and can discern the difference between creative license and and what the Bible says, uh, I think this is a wonderful tool. Um, Paul and I were surprised when when Ronnie told us that his family has a standing date or did have a standing date. The, the new episodes would come out on Sundays, Sunday evenings, I think. And and they, they would gather around the table and they would watch The Chosen together. I think that's a wonderful thing. So yes, I do recommend it. Um, there are some difficulties. but But remember, they're not representing themselves as being the Word of God, they're simply telling a story. Now, I don't know about you, Lisa. I don't know how old you are. 
But I've watched the Ten Commandments a hundred times in my life. Um, I've watched the greatest story ever told more. I, I, every time it comes on, I watch at least part of it. It's, it's so long. It's like four hours long. But but I'll turn to it and watch, and, and I love it every time. And there's a bunch of stuff there that's wrong. But it's telling the story, and people are talking about it, and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people worldwide are now thinking about Jesus Christ. So I think it's a great, great um, offering by Dallas Jenkins and the people that are doing it. Let me let me also take this opportunity to encourage you to go watch the or Jesus Revolution movie. Uh, it is about um, the Calvary Chapel movement, the um, the days of the Jesus People revival, um, and, and and I call it an awakening. Um, I know the, the many of the people uh, who are characters, Pastor Chuck Smith, who's now with Jesus, and Greg Laurie, whose uh, the story is told from his perspective. Um, all of the names in there, I've seen the people, Love Song and um, Lonnie Frisbee, I've seen them all. And uh, I, I think it's a really good story. Now, again, it's not completely faithful to what happened, the way it happened, or the chronology that things happened. But it's really good. And I think you could take an unbeliever to that movie, buy their ticket. It's an act of evangelism. Buy their ticket. And I think, Lisa, um, you'd have an opportunity to answer a lot of questions. But to see the power of God moving, this was 50 years ago, a little more than 50 years ago now, when the Jesus revival, Jesus people revival began. Uh, But it, it literally changed the world, um, and, and the, the fruit has been long-lasting. Um, so, uh, I, I yes, I, I also recommend the Jesus Revolution. Um, so go see it. I think it'd be great. And by the way, the guy that plays Lonnie Frisbee in that movie is the guy who plays Jesus on The Chosen, Jonathan uh, Rumi, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Juan says, "How can I get more passion in my service for the Lord?" Juan, that's the easiest question that I'm going to answer. Just be with Jesus. You can't help but to be passionate if you're hanging out with Jesus. And conversely, when you're passion is waning. You know, the Apostle Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Um, When you see that wane, it's because you're not hanging out with Jesus. It really is that simple. So what you have to do, Juan, is is just spend time in the presence of the Lord. I don't mean just in the morning and doing a devotion or, or the time that you take for prayer. I mean, be with Jesus every minute of every day throughout your day, whatever it is you do, take Jesus with you and your day will be richer, it will be fuller. And that's how we live the abundant life that Jesus promised. But here's something else, Juan, that I think we really need to consider. You know, we have an idea that passion is goosebumps or people that are really, really excited for the Lord. You know, the, the most passionate Christians I know are those who walk with the Lord, not too high, not too low, but keep that consistent, even keel in their walk. Just every day, committed and submitted to the Lord, surrendered to his Lordship, willing and desiring to do his will. Those are the men and women that are the most passionate of all. Because when you do that, then you're serving when you feel like it. You're serving when you don't feel like it. You also need one to keep your sin account short. And by that, I mean when you mess up, repent. Oh, God, I did it again. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. You can't coexist sin or or sin and passion don't coexist. So what you do is keep that that account short. Paul says we're to examine ourselves, our hearts daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. And passion isn't something that you have to work up. Passion isn't, as I said, goosebumps or tears or being super emotional or super loud. Passion comes from Jesus. So learn to love him. And passion, I promise one, won't be a problem. Grow up, mature in your walk, 
and be more and more consistent. Here's a question from Oliver. He says, since there's no marriage in heaven, will we not be together as husband and wife? Um, Oliver, when I got saved and, and um, you know, I, I'd done everything I could to destroy my marriage and um, finally I'm saved. I love God. I love Paula and everything was great. And in my early years trying to learn who Jesus was and read the Bible, I, I read that, that there'd be no marriage in heaven. I was bummed out. I was bummed out. And here's how the Lord comforted me. He said, you know, your relationship with Paula will be so much better, so much more intimate than it was ever here on earth in heaven. And then he asked me to trust him on it. Now, he also sort of whispered in my ear and said, don't worry, I'll make Paula hang out with you in heaven. For me, that's a blessing. I'm not so, so sure for her. But um, yeah, you'll hang out together. You're one flesh. In heaven, you'll be together. But you'll both be married to Jesus. So uh, you will be together. Paula, as I said, is going to be forced to hang out with me. But um, we're going to love each other more than we ever knew that it was possible to do. And it will be just the ordinary state of things in heaven. Derek wants to know, did God create some people just to go to hell? Now, this is that Calvinist soteriology that we talked about earlier in the program. Um, Derek, no, he didn't create some people just to go to hell. Now, obviously, God knows everything because he lives outside of time and space. So he knows who is going to spend eternity in hell. That's separation from God, deepest, darkest, blackness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Uh, he knows who's going to be there. But that's not why they were created. We were created, according to Revelation chapter 4, we were created uh, to bring God glory. We were created to praise him. All things, our lives are to be lived toward him. Uh, and the people that will end up in hell are the people who refuse to do what they were created to do. But the fact that God knows who's going to hell doesn't mean that he caused them to go to hell. In fact, he gave them a choice. He gave them a free will. And he offered um, the the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of sins to everybody. That's what John 3.16 really means. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Derek, as wonderful a gift as it is, and maybe we might be amazed that anybody would say no to it. The reality is that more people say no to Jesus than say yes to Jesus by far. By far. And they're going to end up separated from God, but God didn't cause it. Isaiah 28, verse 21, I think it is, says that judgment is a strange work for the Lord. It's something that he doesn't want to do. But because he's holy and just, it's something that he has to do. And yet, literally, we have to walk over Jesus' dead and resurrected body in order to go to hell. He makes it, God does, really difficult to go to hell. He makes it simple to go to heaven. We just have to believe. Uh, and those who don't believe, it's on them. It's not on God at all. Be careful. If you're hanging out with some Calvinists who say, oh, God appoints some for heaven, some for hell. You say, but, but wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. Well, he's the potter, you're the clay. How can the clay say to the potter this and that? So what you do is you just simply accept that God honors our free will choices in eternity, the choices that we made in life. So thank you for that. Mike, oh, got a phone call. Good, good, good. We got Lucy on line one from Universal City. I know you. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks. Awesome. Well, the reason why I'm calling is because today was our Calvary Crafters meeting. And, you know, we we um, do a Bible study before anything else. And, um, and today we were studying Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. We noticed that um, 
Paul uses three types of examples as he tells Timothy about the things that he would uh, encourage him to do as a young pastor and uh, as, as he speaks to him. And my question to you today is those three examples of a soldier, um, an athlete, and the farmer, um, can you explain or can you share with us how each of those examples has affected your ministry? And, oh my. and how did it become real to you when, as, as you are encouraged <laughs> by Timothy's, uh, the first and second Timothy and the letters from Paul? I could do that, Lucy. Can I ask you a favor first? Sure. Would you give me like a 30-second explanation for the audience? What is Calvary Crafters and what do they do? Sure. Um, Calvary Crafters is a group sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We are a group of women that get together to fellowship, to study the Word of God, and to uh, break bread together. You know, there's always calories when it comes to Calvary <laughs> Chapel and Calvary Crafters. And, uh, and we fellowship together. When a need arises in our body, we, um, we try to provide it as best we can. As a matter of fact, today I, re- I reminded the ladies that if anybody has blue thread and an upholstery needle that they need to take it with them each time they go to church and just sew up <laughs> our little seats there that are kind of needing some attention. So uh, I, uh, we are always looking for something that will bless someone and all the while fellowshipping and studying the Word of God. Thank you, Lucy. God bless you. And Tell people to keep keep our church not from being too tacky. Keep sewing up those chairs that uh, that get torn. So appreciate it very very much. Thank you for that. And I'll answer the question. I love it. This is um, as people that come to our church know uh, one of my very favorite books because Paul is my favorite character, and this is the most personal of all of his letters. This is like he's saying goodbye to his son in the faith, Timothy. And, and he's getting right to the to the the, the important things, and, and Timothy, because I love you. Here are your instructions. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. And um, in these last days, these are wonderful exhortations and warnings for us as well. Lucy asked, "How did these things? Uh, when did they become real to me?" And and Lucy, they all became real to me. Um, I've been doing this now for almost twenty eight years, and. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to teach the Bible, but it's nothing to live through the things that you're teaching. And when verse 3 in Second Timothy chapter 2 says, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, uh, that becomes real the minute you're in, in a trial. Um, I, I'm speaking at a, at a pastor's conference um, this weekend. Uh, in 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 Houston for the Texas Oklahoma pastors, and um, you know the, the the theme is finishing well or or enduring. Uh, Our Lady's Retreat theme uh, coming up a week from this weekend is endure. And um, you know, too many of us when we find ourselves in trials, we, we maybe we had different expectations. We find ourselves in trials and we want to quit. Well, God must not be in this because it's hard. And Paul tells us to endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And, you know, uh, it becomes real in our lives the moment that we find ourselves really experiencing hardship. um, Because too often we think, well, if God's in this, it shouldn't be like this. But um, Paul said to endure. And and that's real for the moment. You know, I always think of a soldier. Now, I'm an old school. I see these guys. um, I'm for the Vietnam War era. I did not go to Vietnam. But, uh, you know, you see um, the, the stories coming out of Vietnam. I know people that have come out of Vietnam and their brains are kind of scrambled. Um, we see the older movies where soldiers are in foxholes and they're filthy and they can't sleep and they don't have food. Uh, those are hardships. And a soldier has to be prepared for hardships. Jesus said people will hate you on account of me. 
He said, they will persecute you on account of me. They will insult you because of me. And then he says, endure. We don't have a right to quit just because things gets hard. The other time it comes becomes really real, and I think this is something that we all need to hear, is verse 4 says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. The primary directive for every Christian ought to be to please the Lord. Paul writes, uh, uh, find out what pleases the Lord. It needs to be the mission in our life. And too often we let the affairs of this world, whether it's political or personal um, career goals, things like that, things that the world is focused on, we can't be tripped up by those things because we've got to stay focused on pleasing the Lord. And then when he says, uh, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. And that reminds me, Lucy, there's times when it's easy to take shortcuts. There's times when, oh, that's not a big deal. But but here's what I say all the time. We have to do things Jesus' way. He doesn't ask me for my input on anything. He doesn't say, okay, here's what I want you to get done. How you do it is on your, uh, up to you. He tells me what he wants done and how he wants me to do it. And I don't have any right to interpret that. So we need to stay in our lanes. I love the picture of, of the athlete in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We have to stay in our lane. We've got to run inside the lines. We can't paint in the gray areas. We can't take shortcuts just because, well, that'll help me get it done. It's not the, the, the ends justify the means life. We have to do things according to his will and according to his terms. The the last one that you mentioned, the farmer, the hardworking farmer. Well, for me personally, I have no affinities for farmers. I just can't do that. But uh, that's a blessing. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share in the crop. So when you're faithful in those other areas, then there's going to be fruit. There's going to be blessing. And your life is going to be the rich, full, abundant life that Jesus promised. So, Lucy, thank you for that question. I hope that works for you. I think we don't, probably don't have enough time for any more calls, so let me just get to a question. Um, Michael says, Pastor Ron, what do you think is the advantage of teaching verse by verse? Michael, this is the easiest question for me to answer other than the just be with Jesus one earlier. Um, I, I can't skip things that I don't like or things that are uncomfortable. You know, when Paul said goodbye to the, the Ephesian elders, he said, um, uh, I have declared to you the full counsel of God. And what he's saying in context there is, look, if you go and blow it, that's not on me, that's on you. Your blood is on your head, not on mine. Why? Because I have declared to you the full counsel of God. Now, we live in a world where pastors will take uh, portions of Scripture, make a topical message out of it, and teach the things that people want to hear. They'll soften the things that people don't want to hear, just refusing to deal with them. You know what? I never, Michael, I never have that opportunity. If I were to skip a couple verses, if I were to say to my church, well, you know what? I know we didn't do this verse or that verse, but but I'm just going to skip over those. Let's go down to another. My church would say, wait a minute. Why don't you go to those verses? They've come to expect it. And it's because I am obligated to give them the full counsel of God. So that's the primary advantage. There's another advantage for me personally as a pastor, Michael. It's that uh, I don't have to be creative. I never spend a moment thinking about what I'm going to teach next week. I don't have to. I don't have to figure, come up with a topic, or come up with a subject. I don't have to respond to the the news events in the world around us. Um, all I have to do is pick up where I left off last week, and I can actually dig in and study the passage instead of spending a bunch of time trying to figure out what I'm going to do in a three point sermon that's going to make the point I want to make, and maybe I can take a couple of verses out of context and seemingly support what I want to do. I don't do that. I just. If anybody comes to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, wherever I ended last Sunday, I'm going to pick up this Sunday. The same thing is true on Wednesday night. The same thing is true on Friday night. That's the advantage for me personally of teaching verse by verse. I would be dead by now, I'm certain, if I put the kind of pressure on me to come up with some 
good message or some feel-good message or some inspiring message. I don't have to worry about that. And the objection, Michael, that I get from other pastors um, about teaching verse by verse is that, well, well, how can you share the gospel? How can you how can you let them know what God has done for you if you're just going through the Bible verse by verse? I've never, ever had a Bible study where I couldn't share the gospel of Jesus Christ, where I couldn't comfort people with the love of God, even while correcting them. I did a Bible study not too long ago where I said, you know, you can be kind and direct at the same time. At the uh, conference that I did this past weekend in the San Francisco area, um, I had one of the other pastors come to me and he said, you know, you are so direct, but your voice is so soft. I really appreciate that. And I wish I could do it. And I told him the same thing. You know, you can be kind and direct at the same time. And in fact, if you're not being direct, you're not being kind. And for me, Michael, just giving people the whole word of God. No skipping books. I don't do it in chronological order. It's not like I start in Genesis and go through. Uh, we do one one night a week, the, the Old Testament. Um, and then Friday night and Saturday or Sunday mornings are, are uh, New Testament studies. So I've been through the New Testament several times with our church. And uh, the Old Testament, I'm, I'm mostly all the way through. There's a few books I haven't done yet that I'm going to get to, uh, but I've done some more than once as well. So it's just, I, I just think it's the best way to do it. Hey, thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate so much that you take time to listen to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And on March 1st, Lord willing, I'll be here on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.